0: This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at eight thirty or ten a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text Mission to ninety seven thousand. Now enjoy the podcast. Thank you, brother. Good morning, church. It is an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning and to be able to share God's Word. And yes, the last thing you want is a phone call at 6.30 p.m. after Tennessee loses an agonizing one to Alabama. And you talk about trying to get your heart right real quick. Oh, man. If you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. I want us to look at a, a very interesting story that involves three individuals Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I discovered that when preparing a sermon like this, you get tired of saying the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they're not fun to say. But I got to thinking about this story, and it it made me think of westerns. I don't know about y'all, but I was raised in a house uh, where John Wayne was the western guy, the duke. That's right. Um, Dad loved westerns. Growing up, I would watch them with them, uh, and it wasn't until I got older I started understanding some more of the subtle humors in there. Uh, But it made me think of one Western in particular, and it may be the last great Western that's ever been made. It's Tombstone. Uh, Show of hands, who's seen the movie Tombstone? All right. We're cooking. All right. In Tombstone, there's a character played by Val Kilmer, and his name is Doc Holliday. And Doc Holliday has some of the best one-liners in this movie that I've ever seen. (laughs) And some of y'all are already giggling, y'all. <laughs> he's got some really good ones. One of the funniest ones, there's a, there's a scuffle in the street. And Doc Holliday comes out to see what's going on. And he, he's got a, a gun on this guy. And he says, you, music lover, you're next. And the guy says, it's the drunk piano player. You're so drunk, you're probably seeing double. And he goes, I got two guns, one for each of you. He was just that witty. He was that witty. And there's one scene in particular that really stuck out to me is when when Johnny Ringo, who's, who's part of the Cowboys, that's the bad gang, um, he's mad because his friends have just been shot down in the O.K. Corral, this historic gunfight. And uh, his friends lost, they died, he's mad, he's been drinking, and he starts running his mouth in the streets, and he starts trying to call people out, saying, uh, what's wrong, don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? And Doc Holliday stands up and he says, I'm your huckleberry, that's just my game. And so you see... Johnny Ringo's eyes get a little big, and he's like, all right, all right, let's do it. I'll take you out. And he goes, say when? And then they get to him, and they kind of calm, out, calm him down because he knows he's going to lose if he tries to face off against Doc. But Doc stood up with this attitude of confidence in that whatever's going to be is going to be, but I must stand up to you. I must stand up to this evil. And that's where we're at in the story today in Daniel. Um, we're going to start off in Daniel 16 chapter 3, verse 16, but I want to give you some preface of how we got here. So King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, they have taken over uh, the kingdom of of Judah. They've conquered them. They've taken all of their young men of the royal bloodline, uh, good-looking men, and they've put them into service in the king's court, teaching them their languages, seeing who knows what, uh, as far as, like, sciences and things like that go. And you even see this scene, it's it's in Daniel 1, where... The king has his choice wine and his choice food, and he's trying to feed it to these men. And, and Daniel says, hey, we, we don't want to defile our bodies with this food. Give us, give us vegetables. Give us, give us healthy things. Let us eat on that. Feed everyone else that, that stuff. We, we don't want to defile our bodies. And they were trying to honor God in, in doing so. And the guy that was taking care of them was like, listen, I can't feed you something different, and you start looking peaked. you start looking weak, I'm going to look bad. And so Daniel says, give us 10 days. 10 days, let us eat fruits and veggies. You feed these guys your, your wine, your meat, and all that good stuff. And then at the end of 10 days, evaluate. See, see who's looking better. And so this was a, a great miracle in that the first time a vegetarian came out looking better than a meat eater. Um, <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. Daniel, Daniel and, and his guys showed up eating veggies, and they looked fattier. They looked healthier than than the rest of them. So right from the beginning, King Nebuchadnezzar was already seeing favor over Daniel and these three men. And it was that favor that caused a group of people called the Chaldeans to become jealous. So the Chaldeans were magicians or soothsayers or uh, fortune predictors. They, They Basically what they did was they told the king what he wanted to hear to make the king feel good so he wouldn't kill him. That's the gist of what they did, and they were very elegant in doing so. But Daniel comes along, and Daniel has been given a gift from God to be able to interpret dreams and tell the king what's going to come, and it all comes true. And then King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges, there's something about this man. I'm going I'm to put him over Babylon. And in doing so, Daniel says, hey, my three guys right here, you can trust them as you can trust me. Put them in charge of something as well. So he does. So these three are in charge of the administration In Babylon. And so we get to this point where the king has created this giant golden statue, this golden image, and he's going to have a grand opening on it. He's going to reveal it to his people, and he's going to play all this music. And so he puts out this decree that says, hey, I'm going to unveil this statue. I want everyone to show up. Bring your kids. It's going to be fun. We'll have cotton candy. Come on out. And when I play this music, you bow down and you worship this idol. So the king had a a very, very haughty thought of himself that that he was more like a god because of all he had conquered and all he had taken over. And so all these people show up. And amongst them, a large number had to have been Israelites because that's who he last ransacked. So all those people were now under his kingdom. And so you have this giant golden statue being unveiled. And I can only guess thousands upon thousands of people are there. And there's three men that decide not to bow three men made a decision that we can't do this because God said, you shall have no other gods before me and that you shall not worship any other idols. So they were being obedient to God. They were not so much acting in defiance to the king as they were acting in obedience to their God. And so the Chaldeans noticed this and they say, hey, we got them. The king's already decreed that if you don't worship this idol, you get thrown in the fire. You get thrown in this furnace. So they said, we got him. So they, so they run to the king, and they tell the king, hey, you know, you made this, this rule, and we thought it was a great rule, great rule. We loved it. But there's three people that didn't love it, and they're defying you. And the king says, who is it? And, he tell, and they tell him, it's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gets angry. Scripture says he has rage. He says, bring them before me. So they grab these three men, and they bring them before the king. And the king has such an arrogant picture of himself, He quickly assumes that they just didn't understand what the king wanted them to do. So he repeats the instruction again to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, maybe you didn't understand what I meant when I said when the music plays and when I unveil the the idol that you're supposed to bow and worship. I'm sure you probably just misunderstood. So I'm going to tell you this again. And when you're ready, I want you to to go ahead and and worship. Now, I find it funny that the king, who's supposed to be ruler of everything, asks them, you know, "When, when you're ready... You go ahead, which to me, that's kind of a little fishy. I think yeah, you, you, there's probably something you don't know. But that's where we arrive at. King has given the spiel. These three have been found guilty of this decree. And then we get to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. So right off the bat, these three do not call him king. They just call him by his name. Nebuchadnezzar. And they basically say, we don't answer to you. You're not the one that we're afraid of. We answer to God Almighty. That's who we are concerned with. So this is where they stand, and it goes on saying, um, let me back up real quick. The king ended his long instruction to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of, of bowing down and worshiping this idol, But he ends... Uh, with this verse, uh, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So he's trying to portray this image of doubt of there isn't a God out there that can save you from me. I have control over you right now. I'm dictating this situation. Uh, And that's directly a tactic of the enemy. The devil, the first thing he's always going to get you to do is to doubt God's word, to doubt God's authority. If we look back in the first temptation in Genesis 3, the first thing he said to Eve, did God really say, don't eat from this tree? He got her to question God's word, and God clearly said, don't eat from this tree. So that's the first thing God's going to try to get you to do when you're in a spiritual battle, when there's compromise at stake that people want you to kind of kind of blend your faith with with what the world wants you to do and make them both work make them both just kind of just kind of get along and sometimes you can't do that sometimes there is no compromise sometimes it's just obedience to God and that is it regardless of the circumstances and so that's where the king is trying to plant this seed of doubt in their mind saying uh, is there a god that can deliver you from this situation basically is there any other way out and so You may find yourselves in that same situation this morning thinking, is God big enough to handle this problem? Will God show up when I need him to? Is he going to continue to provide for me? Is he going to heal me from this sickness that I have? Is he going to fix these relationships that are broken? Does he hear me? Does he love me? Satan's going to get you to doubt those things by simply asking you a question. Is he big enough? I'm here to tell you today, God is more than big enough. God is more than big enough to handle your problems. He wants all of you, not just the best parts of you. A lot of times we heard this morning this man thought he wasn't worthy. And it's not about being worthy. God wants the best parts of you and he wants the worst parts of you because he wants all of you. He wants your junk. He wants your brokenness. He wants all these things. He wants you to bring them to him because he's the only one that can handle them. He's the only one that can take them and make something beautiful out of it. And so that's where we have to get to as Christians and where we've had enough of this world and saying, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you now. I'm coming to you now. And that's where these three men got to. They've been taken from their homes. They've been taught this foreign language or in this foreign land. And I got to tell you, I'd be willing to bet they've had enough. What more could you possibly do to me? So they go before the king and they say, I don't answer you. I'm trusting in God. I've had enough of this. And he keeps going. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So then they answer Nebuchadnezzar with this declaration that the God that we serve is plenty big to outdo you. The God we serve can deliver us from this furnace. So there's confidence in the ability of God. We need to have confidence in the ability of God and what he can do in our lives. Jesus Christ can show up in miraculous ways that we can't even comprehend. That's a fact. So hold tight to that fact. That's truth. Okay? Now, verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These verses paint probably one of the most complete pictures I could find of what sovereignty means. They both know that God is able to do all these things, and they hold on to that truth, but they also understand that it may not be God's will for their life that God do those things. And what we have to get to as Christians is a point of not what if, but even if. Even if God does not show up the way I want him to, even if God does not come through in the way that I expected him to, he's still God. He's still ruler over all. And I'm still going to trust him, regardless of what you do to me. We as Christians, we must have this heart that even if everything else crumbles around us and fails, God will not. He is everlasting. Scripture says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus was our provider then, he's going to be our provider now. And he'll be your provider tomorrow. If Jesus was our healer then, he's our healer now, and he'll be your healer tomorrow. He is constant. He is everlasting. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't rest. He doesn't go weary. He always hears you when you call out for him. It just may not be the way that we expect it sometimes. But when you have this attitude of even if God doesn't show up, we're still not going to disobey him. Because we as Christians, we often get to this point where we think obedience renders a miracle. If we obey God and do everything he asks us to do, then our life will be pretty and perfect and painless. When oftentimes it's probably the opposite. The more we obey God, the more the world's gonna hate us. The more we obey God, the more the devil's gonna come to attack you and create circumstances in your life to get you to compromise that obedience. And that's just the way it is. But when you can show up with the heart of even if, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. You obey God not because you want to earn a miracle or, or, or deserve a miracle, but because of the miracle that you are already been given in salvation through Jesus Christ. We obey God because of what he's already done for us, not because of what we want him to do for us. It is out of that love that he has had for us that we reflect that back to him and doing simply what he has asked of us to do. And we know that his instruction is good. It's good. It's nourishing for our souls. So there's no reason to, to doubt or mistrust him because he's never lied. He's never not kept his word. He has never failed, and he never will. First Samuel 7.3 says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So these, these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, understand that if we can return to God in, in our heart, then he will deliver us. He will, he will be there to protect us somehow. And so if you if you continue to, to read on, you'll find out that this enraged the king. Nebuchadnezzar was, was furious. I think it said his face changed. Yeah, his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I got to thinking... I wonder if he looked like Buford T. Justice from the bandit when he found out the bandit's like right over there watching the whole time. And he... You see this, this king who's had this golden image, supposed to be this grand reveal, and there's three flies in the ointment that are just upsetting him to no end. And so he, he goes overboard. He says, heat that furnace up seven times what we normally do. Now, I can't, I can't imagine what kind of uh, contraption this was that they had. But it's basically a giant oven that they're going to throw these guys in. And uh, I, it was obviously hot enough to kill someone beforehand, so now they're going to crank it up to 11 and see what it can really do. He just, he just really does want not any evidence left of these guys' existence ever. And so he, he, he calls on valiant warriors, certain valiant warriors. This wasn't just run-of-the-mill folks, right? It wasn't just the cupbearer. It wasn't just uh, the cook. It was valiant warriors that bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were assigned to get them into the furnace. That was their job. And so they do that. Clothes are fully on. Caps are on. They're fully clothed. It says all this, that they didn't, you know, was no ritualistic preparation. They just bound them up, and they were going to throw them in. And on the process of throwing them in, the valiant warriors died from the fire. They couldn't even handle the heat. The king basically took out his own guys. But he's he's just enraged at this point. And then and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego land in the fire. And I love I love what happens in verse 24. I'm just trying to picture this in my head of, of this king who was so mad and so angry. And then you throw three guys in a fire and he looks up. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said, Is this uh He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? And then they replied, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men loosed, walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So... These three men stood before the king and said, Our God is is powerful enough to deliver us from this furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship this false idol. And come to find out, God did not deliver them from that furnace. He delivered them to the furnace. Because in that fire, in that furnace is where Jesus was. And so this king goes from being enraged and angry to like, Where did that fourth guy come from? Who put him in there? And I think it's VeggieTales does a a version of this where the one guy's like, there's four now and that fourth one's real shiny. He has that accent. I don't understand the accent. but, uh. (laughs) But it's clear that there's something going on here. These men are just walking around in a furnace that's seven times hotter than what it normally is. And I wonder what they're talking about. Man, it's kind of warm in here. Are you warm? No, I'm all right. These jackets are nice, aren't they? Yeah, I'm glad they let us keep them. I don't know what they were talking about. Can you believe that? Can you believe where we're at? Hey, are you Jesus? I don't know. But what I do know is this. When they come out of this furnace, it says that not even their hairs were singed. Not even their clothes were burnt up. They didn't even smell of smoke. We had a, a youth bonfire last week. And I can tell you, you spend two minutes around that campfire, you're going to smell of smoke. I can't imagine being in the middle of this furnace. They come out looking, looking good. They're ready to go party. Their hair's done up. Their clothes are done. They smell good. It's a miracle. Anyone, any, any man who's grilled before, especially on a gas grill, knows that it don't take but one flare-up to lose all the, arm, all the hair arm for about a week. And they were in the middle of this furnace. Not even the hairs were singed. That's how much Jesus cares, and that's how powerful Jesus is to control the situation, that He can even keep the hairs on your head from being harmed. And don't think that he's not tracking those. I think think Scripture says that God, he's, he's counted every tear that you've cried. He knows all the hairs on your head. He knows everything there is to know about you. And he wouldn't learn all these things if he didn't care. He loves us. He loves us so much. But one thing we must understand, we must lay claim the ultimate display of godly courage is not to die with desperate expectations that God will somehow intervene at the last moment, but rather to live or die in complete confidence that God will do what He will do. God is sovereign and God is in control, but God is also good and He loves us. This is trusting in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God pertains to His ultimate authority. Satan prays on the premise that he will reward our acts of obedience to him. He always taunts us with, if you'll do this and this, then I'll give you all these things. He did the same thing to Jesus when he he said, I'll I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll just simply bow and worship me. Satan always going to offer you a piece of candy to get you to do what he wants you to do, but it's not worth it. It never has been and it never will be. But God says, follow me. I love you. What I have for you to do is going to be the best for you. It's going to be so good if you will trust me in this. We have to trust him. We have to be obedient to him, regardless of the situation. Our obedience to God is not to a miracle. It's, it's to death. And the best thing about that is that is simply a reciprocation of Jesus Christ. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was about 2,000 years ago that Jesus and Satan had an interaction. And the devil said, uh, do you have the guts to play for blood? And Jesus said, I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game. So I don't know where you're at, church, where your heart is. If you're in a, a season of turmoil where maybe whatever you're facing you think might be just a little bit bigger than the gods you serve, I want to assure you today it is not. God is in control. God loves you. He cares All he's asked for is just be obedient to him. And it's not obedience so that you can receive some sort of a gift or a miracle, but simply because of the gift of salvation that we've already been given in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have not received that gift, then today can be a great day for you. If you're wanting to receive Christ as your Savior, please find somebody. Share that with them, that that's where your heart is, that you're ready to make that commitment, that leap, that you want to follow him and be obedient to him for the rest of your life. And don't leave here without making that commitment. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much. Thank you for for your word. Thank you for the examples that we have in scripture of men who, who were bullied, who were intimidated. They were strangers. They were outcasts. But they were obedient to you not because of what you could do for them, but because of who you simply are. God, may we find our hearts today being obedient to to you, not because of of what you can do for us, but simply because of who your son Jesus is. Lord, we thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his blood, and we thank you that he has taken our sin and it has been dealt with forever, Lord. We offer all this up to you now in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.